Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the parallel legacies of 9-11, including the war on terror and military spending, the casual acceptance of Islamophobia, the adoption of ever-wilder conspiracy theories, and the acceleration of the political divide in America culminating, so far, in the January 6th insurrection. Clips today are from Uneffing the Republic, The Real News, Democracy Now!, The Brian Lehrer Show, Doomed with Matt Bender, Vox Conversations, World Review from the New Statesman, Who, What, Why?, American Prestige, and Breaking the Sound Barrier by Amy Goodman. In the days immediately following the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, Congress gave the Bush administration unprecedented authority to wage full-scale war on terror. On September 14, 2001, Congress passed the Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF, allowing the executive branch to leverage all available military assets to bring to justice combatants deemed responsible or materially supportive of forces associated with the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Recall that only Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California voted against this measure in Congress. Here is the AUMF in general, quote, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. End quote. So it was under this authority that the United States government declared war first in Afghanistan and then Iraq shortly thereafter. It's under this authority as well that the executive branch has carried out everything from covert assassinations to drone strikes in countries such as Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. It's under this authority that we continued to bomb countries throughout the world without permission or hesitation. A self-granted authority, illegal in the eyes of any and every international body, though few developed nations would dare question us. In so many ways, this authorization simply brought our actions out from behind the curtain, though. Subsequent updates to this authority changed in seemingly subtle but powerful ways. Gradually, the language related to 9-11 disappeared, and the authorization broadened to anyone suspected of aiding terrorism anywhere, period. Reprint a portion of a terrorist manifesto, even if it's in a journalism piece? You're fair game. Inspire terrorist actions by preaching on a street corner somewhere thousands of miles from the homeland? You're fair game. An American citizen joining a movement abroad? Fair game. The year following the coup in Chile, a Senate Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, known as the Church Committee, after Democratic Senator Frank Church of Idaho, offered a look inside the inner workings of our clandestine world. Among the findings... The CIA had varying roles in coups and assassination plots in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Vietnam, and of course, Chile. In the case of the Congo, the committee discovered the agency had actually plotted to kill its newly elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, and although they didn't ultimately do the deed, the Belgians did, they supplied the weapons and the money to help it along, originally planning to poison the leader. 
The committee also shed light on just how high up the chain of command these orders came, revealing a concept called plausible deniability, meaning the president and other officials with authority to pull the trigger on such activities could know without knowing about them and escape blame. The Church Committee also discovered widespread domestic surveillance operations by the CIA, including the mass photographing and or opening and resealing of citizens' mail without even the U.S. Postal Service's knowledge. Our intelligence agencies would meddle in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, South and Central America, anywhere we saw fit to frustrate a nation-state that didn't play by our rules. Reagan carried out covert affairs all throughout his term, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. George H.W. Bush brought us into the Gulf War. Clinton went into Bosnia and Somalia. And all of this occurred before 9-11-2001. You see, this behavior was already the way of the U.S., but it was done in secret. The Church Committee exposed our clandestine ways, yet nothing changed. Post-9-11, we didn't just invent widespread surveillance and begin overthrowing nations. We just brought these programs into the light and gave them all of the necessary funding to grow into an autonomous being, a war machine the likes of which the world has never seen. What really struck me here is not just the $21 trillion was spent, but the tentacles of that and how it and that's what you're trying to do here is wrap around what the $21 trillion meant because it's more than just an amount of money being spent. It's what, it's what it has engendered because of that spending. We wanted to look at two things with this report that went a little deeper. One, for one thing, we wanted to look not just at the cost of the wars that we've started in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we wanted to look at the cost of how we've militarized here at home. Things from our ranging from our immigration system to the FBI and the increased powers that the FBI has had for the past 20 years. And all of these things that kind of grew out of the war on terror or that the war on terror really fed into over the last 20 years. So that was one part of it. And then we also wanted to look at, you know, what has that money actually done? How has it changed our world? How has it changed our communities? How has it changed our law enforcement, our policing, our immigration system? All of these things, a lot of which have you know, really been hot button issues over the last few years. And you went in, in the way you described this, and we'll get into the heart of it in just a second here. But you also, which I found interesting, weaved a narrative that, that tied in this explosion of white supremacy, this explosion of authoritarianism in our own country that you link between 9-11 2001 and January 6, 21, and, and leaving Afghanistan. To you, in this report, it's not just about dollars and cents. It's also all connected. Yes, it, that's very much the case. It is all connected. If you think about you know, our evolution from 9-11, and a lot of people don't remember that in the early years after 9-11, the Department of Justice actually had what was effectively a Muslim ban on immigration. Everybody remembers the Trump Muslim ban, but not everybody remembers the Bush Muslim ban. And so it traces all the way back to that. And some of these themes have, you know, really had their roots in the response to 9-11. And then, you know, we see growing animosity to immigrants, we see growing xenophobia, we see growing authoritarianism, we see growing militarism and growing belief that law enforcement and crackdowns and 
and violent oppression are the way to maintain order in this country and in other countries around the world. And all of that really can be drawn back to the U.S. response to 9-11 and the things that we did in the name of security for ourselves that in the end did anything but keep us secure and have made the entire world a less secure place. And the way you do it, and then we'll get into some specifics here, it's the $21 trillion that was spent over the last 20 years as entwined within that and enabled that. Absolutely. Yes. The, yes. The spending has made all of it possible. From the, I mentioned the first Muslim ban was enforced by the Bush Department of Justice. The second was the Trump Department of Justice. Most people don't think of the Department of Justice as an arm of the war on terror, but it very much has been. And so we looked at that and we've looked at, of course, the Department of Homeland Security, which is a huge arm of both the war on terror and the militarization of our society in general. You know, think of the militarization of the southern border. Some people have heard at least that we have troops that we've sent to the southern border, military troops that are inside the country at our southern border. People may not have heard that we're using drones, predator drones, military drones to patrol the southern border. So there's a lot of militarization that's going on around all of these things. And it's been funded by the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, and in large part, the Department of Justice, which has where the FBI is and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and all of these agencies that have actually taken an active role in the war on terror. uh, And one of the Justice Department's core missions is anti-counterterrorism. But what that has amounted to is that the FBI has gained powers to not just surveil people, and we all know that they may be listening into our phone calls or at least have access to our phone records, but they've been able to engage in racial profiling with no real limits on their power. The FBI has surveilled and harassed entire communities just based on their race or ethnicity or their religious background, not just Muslim communities, although certainly they've done that, but also Chinese American communities and Black African American communities looking for crime, but where they have no evidence of a specific crime or wrongdoing, and they're targeting entire communities just based on race and ethnicity. And all of that has grown out of the response to 9-11, and all of it has been enabled by the spending that we have done this $21 trillion over the course of the last 20 years. So let's, for a moment, before we jump into the FBI and jump into the uh, other pieces of this, detentions at the border and more, let's talk for a moment about the $21 trillion and how you parsed that out and how you came up with that number. From reading the report, there's $16 trillion that went to the military, a huge number of that trillion, almost half or more, half, almost half went to contractors. But to talk a bit about the $21 trillion for a moment and how That's that was spent right. and what that meant. That's right, Mark. So of the $21 trillion we've spent on what we call militarization over the last 20 years, it's the Pentagon, it's our wars, but it's not just our wars. It's the 750 military installations that we keep around the world all the time with over 200,000 troops stationed permanently overseas. It's those things. It's the war in Afghanistan. It's the war in Iraq. It's the way that the war on terror has spilled over into 85 other countries total besides Afghanistan and Iraq. And we know what some some of those will be familiar, Syria, Yemen, Pakistan, but it's in 85 countries where we have drone strikes or we're doing uh, training of troops or we're doing other counterterrorism missions, including combat missions. So the war on terror is huge. So 
all of that Pentagon spending, both for the war on terror and all of the other military missions we have going at any given time, that accounts for about $16 trillion. We also include the cost of caring for veterans because we don't have to have these veterans programs. They're very necessary, but they're only necessary because we send our troops on these endless deployments. So we include that. That's about $3 trillion. Then we include the costs of Homeland Security over the last 20 years. That's about $950 billion. And the costs of federal law enforcement, things like the FBI and the DEA, the U.S. Marshals, all of these agencies are very engaged in counterterrorism. They're very engaged in oppression tactics and racial profiling and mass incarceration and things that uh, are really damaging to communities, especially communities of color in the United States. And they're also engaged in operations overseas. Not everybody realizes the FBI, the DEA, the U.S. Marshals, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, they all have offices outside of the United States. So it's a really big system. And that's that last law enforcement part is about $730 billion. All of that put together gets you to $21 trillion over the last 20 years. And we have some, we talk a lot in the report about what else we could have done with that money because $21 trillion is a number that most of us can't really wrap our heads around. We don't deal with right. trillions of dollars. <laughs> We're lucky. Like Most of us are okay with thousands. Maybe a few of us can get into millions, <laughs> but be, beyond that, we get a little lost, right? So we look at some of what that's cost. And for example, the CDC budget on an annual basis was only about $12 billion, and it went up to about $16 billion during the pandemic. And that's billion, not trillion. So it, it's huge. It's a huge dollar amount. And all of that money that has gone towards these militarized purposes is money that we haven't put into anything here at home. We're talking about right now an infrastructure package or the package of Biden's Build Back Better package uh, that would total $3.5 trillion over 10 years. That is less than a quarter of this, and it's only for 10 years. And that's when we're hearing, oh, we can't afford that. That's too expensive. But we've spent $21 trillion on militarization over the last 20 years. So we have the money to invest when we want to, when that's what our politicians want to do. It's the money is there and they have the ability to do it. If you could start off now, in this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, by talking about what drives the Islamophobia, you say this is about racism, it's not about religious bigotry. Absolutely right, Amy. My argument, basically, is that it's not enough to understand Islamophobia simply as hate crimes, although hate crimes do exist. It's not enough to understand it as religious intolerance or microaggressions or hate speech and so on, although we do know that all this exists. But to look at the roots of where it comes from, because what happens when you don't do that is that people accept the rhetoric coming from uh, people at the top of society. So Bush argued, for instance, this is not a war on Islam. It's about the extremists. Uh, Obama, who was an extremely sophisticated orator, talked about how Muslims are such a deep part of American society, that Muslim civilizations have contributed to world history and so on. And people accept that rhetoric and don't see how post 9-11 and even before that, there has been a systematic targeting 
of people who are Muslim. So let me give some examples of how the security establishment works and why uh, deep-seated racism is what drives these policies. So if you look at the FBI's entrapment uh, policy, right, the FBI sends agents provocateurs into Muslim communities to entrap vulnerable people with things like, you know, giving them cash to set up these plots. And of course, immediately after they set it up, they nab them. What's the logic here? The logic is that all Muslims are potential terrorists, and therefore we should nab them before they do anything, right? You look at Obama's uh, counter-radicalization program, the CVE program, and it's about trying to recruit people from the Muslim community, imams, school teachers, uh, coaches, and so on, to spy on their own community. Again, the idea is that there are people in the Muslim community that we should nab before they do anything. Same with the ubiquitous surveillance program, right? Now, there are some people who would say, oh, that's just smart security policy. But if the shoe were on the other foot, I think there'd be howls of anger. Take, for instance, Michael Wade Page, Dylan Roof. These are people who've committed hate crimes. But there's no corresponding you know, program with the FBI or local police departments to go into white communities and spy on them because they can produce people like this, right? There is no program to entrap them before they do anything. If anything, the Second Amendment rights of far-right-wing groups of militias and neo-Nazis um, are respected. That's why it's important to see that racism is baked into the security logic of the national security state in the U.S., as well as in terms of how it operates abroad, because if we don't understand where something is coming from, we can't target its roots and therefore dismantle it. Islamophobia obviously existed in this country before 9-11, but how do you think it changed after the attacks? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think oftentimes we only equate the issue of Islamophobia or we only think about Muslim Americans in the post-9-11 context. Now, definitely the experience post-9-11 was a traumatic one and a life-defining one for many Muslim Americans across the world. Any of the issues that was already existing in a post a pre 9-11 world was only amplified and exacerbated. And I think we particularly see this on the ground with Muslim Americans who went to school, who suddenly were facing unprecedented levels of bullying. We saw a rise in hate crime cases, some of them being vile and vicious and resulted into the death of not just Muslims, but people who were perceived to be Muslim, who were brownish, right? The Muslim identity then became racialized. We saw a rise of cases against Muslim women, right? Gendered Islamophobia, especially those who wear the hijab or the head covering. And so the day-to-day -day life changed completely where all of a sudden so many people felt like they needed to defend their faith they needed to defend who they were. They needed to defend their American identity. And this took a huge emotional and mental toll, I think, on, on the wider community, both in New York City and, and elsewhere. Uh, outside of the social, cultural aspects, we saw mass changes in policies that came from the Bush administration and continued to morph in various forms throughout that 
disproportionately impacted the Muslim American community, things like the Patriot Act, surveillance, the issue of informants, all of which really destroyed the fabric of trust within the Muslim community, going to the mosque and not knowing if the person next to you was a Muslim member, a new neighbor, or someone who was spying on you. We saw that continuing to rise. And so I think when we reflect on the immediate months and years after 9-11, there's just so much to take in that really change and define the Muslim American experience in a way that we had never really seen before. And one of the things that shocked me was how casually accepted it was. I've told this story before, but a few years after 9-11, I went to a minor league baseball game in New Jersey. It was the Lakewood Blue Claws. And it was firefighters night. They were honoring firefighters as a thing before and after the game. And there was a display outside the stadium in Lakewood with some firefighters equipment and some firefighters with that equipment. And one of the guys standing there, I'm not going to say it was a firefighter himself, I don't know, but standing with that group was a guy holding a sign. And the sign said, all I need to know about Islam I learned on 9-11. And in a way, what was most shocking about that was that the crowd just walked by. Very few people said anything to him. And it was just accepted that somebody in a fairly prominent location would hold a sign like that and people would shrug and walk by. Unfortunately, when when did you see this? What year was this? When when You know, I'm trying to remember the exact year. I would say it was around 2004, 2005. I, I, I could look it up in my old records, but it was a few years after 9-11. You know, it's wild because I've seen these shirts recently still and folks wear, wearing them shirts and hats and, and other memorabilia. And I think what is particularly unique about Islamophobia and just anti-Muslim rhetoric, generally speaking, is that the faith is not seen as a faith. The Muslim identity has become so politicized over the years that, you know, there's an excellent book out there by Isma Adina talks about when Islam isn't a religion and the constitutional challenges that come with it, but also the fact that people can wear shirts and hats that can say this because it isn't looked like as a faith that is that provides spiritual comfort, right, to 1.3 billion people that is a source of pride uh, for people in the privacy of their homes. It's a sense of worship, just like Judaism or Christianity or Buddhism. It is now seen as a malicious political agenda for Muslims in the U.S. or Muslims out, uh, outside. We have the predominant stereotype arounding Muslims that they are somehow more prone to violence, uh, that they are somehow more prone to oppress women, and uh, that it lacks fair and, and justice in the faith, all of which is not true, right? I think it's a deeply private and emotional part of so many people's lives. But all of a sudden, when you have to defend it, not only from a civil rights perspective, but also because this is a emotional and private spiritual journey for so many people, that dehumanization has led us to many of the problematic policies that we saw immediately after and we continue to see today. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention, and unfortunately we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us 
just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. It's about this McIlvain family who've basically lived with for the past 20 years, the fact that their son, Bobby, died in the Twin Towers. He did not usually work there. He went to set up, help a co-worker set up for a conference that morning, it just so happened. And he was there in the restaurant, Windows of the World, if I recall. That's the name. Yeah, Windows on the World, excuse me. And he was just setting up this conference for his coworker, and he was there. And his family have basically been grieving and living with this for the past 20 years. And for this specific episode, everyone, every member of this family, from the mother, the brother, the fiance, who he literally proposed to days before he died, all have extremely interesting experiences. And, and I'm again, please go read this piece. I'll link to it in... The YouTube, it's a very strong piece. But the father, to me, stuck with me because Bobby McIlvain's father, Bobby McIlvain Sr., he became basically a 9-11 truther. His way of mourning his son was to fight, well, how he, what he viewed at least as fighting for his son in terms of fighting to find out what really happened. And he basically was convinced by a group called the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is like a truth organization filled of various different like scientists and architects who basically you know, use their know-how to, to convince people of these various conspiracy theories. Because, you know, knowing the terminology behind explosions and architectural information could be quite convincing to a layperson. And he basically came to the belief that 9-11 was an inside job. And there were explosives planted throughout the Twin Towers. And he actually believed that, for a long time actually, his family believed that his that their son was actually leaving the World Trade Center due to the timing of everything. He had set up the event for his co-worker and was leaving when the planes hit. And they think, due to the horrific autopsy results and where, how they found his body... That he was leaving and he basically was hit by a piece of the plane, which is obviously horrible. But the father had all these questions based on how he was hit, where the damage on his person was. And he basically believed his son was in there and there were explosives. And... In the piece, actually, really interesting, the writer of the piece, Jennifer Sr., she actually approaches him with evidence he never considered. This is a guy who, for 20 years, has been 
working on debunking the story of how his son died. And there was some very basic evidence he never considered, uh, such as when the conference was supposed to take place, which would put a lot of the timeline in place for him. And it's just really amazing to see that someone who dedicated their life to this just was so convinced by this group that they didn't seek out some very basics. And to me, it was just so eye-opening. I mean, that's that's. I'm sure you'll find that story, same story repeated from family members of people who've fallen down the conspiratorial rabbit holes for any conspiracy, really. But just this past year with QAnon and people pushing the big lie, Trump's election fraud theories, and the various different versions of the anti-vaxxer movement that believes COVID isn't real, which is obviously not true. It is. More people have died from COVID than on 9-11. To me, the 9-11 truth stuff, obviously, I feel isn't as bad on its own as some of the stuff that came later on. It's interesting just how conspiracy theories grew. And you could see some of the names, obviously. Alex Jones will come up if you bring up Loose Change because he was behind, he wasn't involved with the first iteration of Loose Change, but like either the third, I think the third edition, he got involved and he really helped make a name for himself early on as a 9-11 truther. And as you see, he goes from these really harmless conspiracy theories. A lot of the UFO stuff I think is harmless, but he goes from being this guy to becoming like the 9-11 truther, still, you know, not so hard. And then he goes into the Sandy Hook stuff and the Trumpism and the Pizzagate, QAnon, satanic ritual stuff. And then he's pushing the big lie and he's leading a group of people on January 6th. And you can see how this persona grows from these smaller board conspiracies to who he becomes today. Let's go there. Let's go back to those days after 9-11. It's obviously very hard to summarize our collective response to that national trauma, which involved a wave of legislation and the construction of various agencies and bureaucracies. But was there a unifying thread to all these things that kind of captured the country's reaction to that event? Yes, it's called American exceptionalism, a way of ordering the world that says America constructs what it calls the rules-based international order, which is to say an international architecture through which first it operates in a leading role. And second of all, the outcomes of it, while not always and not guaranteed, are throttled in such a way that it benefits the extent like American political and economic order. It also says that the United States does not have to feel itself bound by the architecture it creates that everyone else is. And most perhaps fundamentally, it says that America acts. America is not acted upon. That was the violation that policymakers felt as they interpreted the trauma of 9-11 
that you heard so much extremely loose and ahistorical talk, but nevertheless significant and revealing talk, that America's innocence had been shattered and that America had returned to history. This also helps you understand that American exceptionalism is basically the geopolitical version of white innocence. America has never been immune from history. All it likes to do is attempt to escape from history and say that it's not culpable for history, not culpable for things that it does to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people whose lives it holds in the balance, particularly at this moment, 2001, when America is the only global superpower, when there's no prospect of a pure competitor for a, a tremendously you know, long time. The Bush administration, to the rabid applause of pretty much uniformly political media and security elites, intellectuals as well, offered an interpretation of 9-11 that had nothing to do with what al-Qaeda explained were the reasons why it was attacking the United States, and instead offered something that was both metaphysical, civilizational, and euphemistic, which is to say, you know, just think about the name War on Terror. It, you know, might take a moment to notice that it's not, say, the war on al-Qaeda, or it's not a war on Islam. But it is something between those poles where it's not specific enough that it can target an enemy after which the enemy is destroyed, its capabilities are used up, and it's a spent force. And at that point, the emergency ends, the thing stops. Nor does it want to say that it is like expressly setting upon a war against one of the world's great religions that has contributed to several of its great civilizations. Instead, something short of that, but not that short, always undefined, always able to have nativist sentiment fill in the gap of this social compromise term called the war on terror. And that is really the response, that a sense of civilizational grievance expressed in metaphysical terms, this foreign adversary drawing on something implied to be intrinsic about the faith of so many people, diagnosing pathologies in entire countries, entire civilizations, entire religions, and saying that violence on a mass scale is both necessary and desirable to reorient, to fix the pathologies once diagnosed in other people. You know, there's a reason why George W. Bush refers to evildoers and bad guys. It's to redefine what evil and bad is from something that you do, acts of evil, to something that you are, which is to say other people who are not Americans against whom so much is licensed in terms of death and in terms of repression and in terms of uh, immiseration. We're fast forwarding a little bit to the present, but I think we should. How did that reaction, how did that posture, this idea that we're in this kind of civilizational drama and we're waging this war against a tactic, which by definition is a ceaseless war, 
How does that lead to Trump? Which obviously is a core thesis of your book, drawing the straight line from yes. 9-11 to today. So map that out for us. So in that response, in the attribution civilizationally of culpability for 9-11, in the pathologizing of Muslims, of Islam, of the Arab world in particular, to, again, spread culpability and deflect any discussion of how America's extant, hegemonic, violent, and exploitative policies in the Muslim world contribute to a demand for the kind of psychotic political violence that bin Laden is offering. As that takes hold, so too do very old, very historically rooted nativist currents in American history. They're expressed openly by pundits who are openly calling for the American military to invade their lands, convert them to Christianity. As Ann Coulter put it, it leads to an atmosphere where nativism is the subtext of the war on terror. That because the 9-11 hijackers were able to enter the country legally, that immigration is not a mechanism to make more Americans. It's a threat to Americans who are already here. And so Muslim immigrants in particular, but immigrants in general, have to be uh, treated in that context of, of counterterrorism with so much accordingly licensed to do against them to include incarcerating them, deporting them, mistreating them when under detention. And, you know, within a month, particularly once there is an obliteration of interest in discussing forthrightly what bin Laden said were his reasons for attacking the United States, that is to say, those material policies of the United States, then at that point, you funnel yourself exclusively in a policy response down this accelerated righteous patriotic violence against some people. It is easy to think, as you put it, that calling it the war on terror was about war with a tactic. Really, the name is a social compromise to not say the war on radical Islamic terror. But it's not a war on terror qua terror, because what we see very quickly is that not everyone's terror is the subject of the war on terror. White people's terrorism, the oldest, most violent, most resilient terrorism in American history, is expressly not part of this and becomes, as one FBI veteran told me much, much later, it becomes the lowest priority for FBI counterterrorism. It also creates, and you see this bubbling up on the right throughout the Bush administration, that like this is about jihadist terrorism. This is about something concerning Islam. And the right keeps demanding a more explicit response here because the cultivated sense, the sense that the war on terror and its architects consistently send is that Islam is the enemy. Islam must be combated over there and not over here. Evangelical leaders, people with tremendous followings, tremendous platforms, tremendous political influence, as well as spiritual influence, settle on this like very explicitly in 2002 as their explanation and preach from the Southern uh, Baptist Convention and other fora that like this was Islam's mask off moment. 
that now it's not just coming for Israel, it's coming for America, which is also, you know, a deep misunderstanding and a deliberate one of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So as the wars deteriorate, it's no accident that the appetite amongst this very cultivated constituency, a constituency actively cultivated in these interpretations by the Republican Party as a tool to retain and cement hold on power and acquiesced to by the Democratic Party, basically nodded to by a military and an intelligence and a law enforcement leadership for a more expressly civilizational definition of the enemy and according focus. And this starts expanding dramatically, particularly when the first black president gets elected. And among the things that this constituency is stoked to believe is that he is an enemy of the United States by virtue, not just of being black, but through the meme of birtherism. The war on terror is right there because it's calling Obama a secret foreign Muslim. And that explains why he is an enemy, why he's not interested in your security and so on. Obviously, we should you know, just pause to say that this is a lie. It's a giant lie. But nevertheless, this found purchase because it was so aggressively cultivated by people like Donald Trump, who, as every New Yorker, particularly of my age, knows, has played this casually violent nativism for his entire public career and makes sure as well that he's present at these moments of eruption. He's present, for instance, when in 2010, a New York City imam and his wife and his business partners try and set up a community center near Ground Zero, where one had already been an actual Muslim place of worship right there. This is not foreign to New York City. This is These are New Yorkers. They set up something that they see as a Muslim equivalent of the 92nd Street Y, which is, it's a Jewish space that plays an important role in the intellectual life of New York City generally. And this gets converted with Donald Trump as as a leading carnival barker endangering people's lives into this ground zero mosque, which is viewed and portrayed actively by Islamophobic bigots exploiting the pain of 9-11 as the equivalent of Mehmet II turning Hagia Sophia into a mosque after conquering Constantinople in 1453. And all throughout the Obama presidency, with things like the cultivated assaults in various state legislatures around the country against Sharia law, that was exactly the kind of eruption of nativism that we would later see on the streets of Charlotte, because what it's saying is that they are replacing you. They're replacing your culture, your values, your tradition, and then ultimately your place in the American racial caste that, while it doesn't guarantee you this, is supposed to provide you with a level of material comfort that lets you and not others live in dignity. Over time, the pain of the war on terror, the agony of it being inconclusive and sitting in tremendous conflict with American exceptionalism, because now suddenly the people that have been described to you as subhuman are winning these conflicts. This goes searching 
for an explanation for why this atrocious circumstance should be happening. And Donald Trump comes along and has an explanation ready to go. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. Do you see, like, with what's happened in the last 10 years um, and just the political landscape in the United States, do you think that the cultural reflections or the cultural memory of 9-11 has changed from the 10th anniversary versus the 20th anniversary? Yes, actually. And I, I think I would actually argue that it's become a more productive conversation this time around at the 20th and the 10th. And what I mean is... I've been struck already as we get into this moment. There have been a number of sort of very intelligent pieces of writing that have appeared in places like the Washington Post, in the Atlantic, that are reckoning with America's decisions in the months and years after 9-11 about how the U.S. conducted the war on terror, about what it meant for America's values, about the decisions to go into war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and ultimately the the ways in which we did or did not make intelligent political choices and the ways in which we were really, let's be blunt, but doing damage to our own values, our own moral credibility around the world with Abu Ghraib, with torture at the hands of the U.S. government. And I think what's changed most deeply, Sarah, in the years in between was that in the beginning, we described 9-11 and our cultural memory as something that happened to us. And we were victims in that story. And what we've come to recognize is that we were also then at the beginning of a period when we were agents ourselves, and we ended up making choices, making political decisions and doing things that were quite active and in the end were quite damaging. And I I think that kind of conversation has been surprising and is very healthy, actually. I'll give you one. I, I find this very compelling this one piece of data that I came upon at one point a few years ago. It was a survey done in 2016 of Americans in which people were asked to estimate, now 15 years after 9-11, asked to estimate what share of the country is Muslim. And Americans on average estimated one in six. And the real number is one in a hundred. 
And it was a demonstration to me of the way in which that event had pinballed through our collective perception and self-awareness and had produced these really bizarre distortions in which Americans, some people were afraid of Sharia law in ways that obviously the facts could not support on the ground. But it had become this huge feature of our politics and, and changed us in ways that we didn't even talk about on the surface every day. Something I really did want to talk about was the left and right divide over how we think about 9-11. Because I think often we think about the development of this conversation. And I guess the presumption is that's a conversation that's developing on the liberal left. And the liberal left also had a lot of problems around the conversation around 9-11 in the years following. The left-wing blogosphere actually had a lot of conspiracy theories about 9-11 and that kind of thing. And that kind of anti-Bush sentiment bled into other more, I guess, what you would say problematic ideas. And I just wondered if you see there as a great distinction between how the conversation around 9-11 has developed over the last 20 years on the right versus on the left, and if you see that as quite distinct or if it's similar. You know, it's interesting. I have started to pay attention a little bit to the way in which the anniversary is commemorated. And I, I would pay attention, for instance, to places that seemed to me far from Washington and how were they experiencing it. So over the last few years, long before the 20th anniversary, I took note that small towns in places like West Virginia, which are predominantly conservative, would be having these occasions of commemoration, often saying essentially, remember our heroes. And what struck me about it was to state the obvious that there have been a whole range of different moments in American life that have, on a sheer numerical basis, taken much more American life, particularly during the pandemic. But that event resides in the memory, particularly among conservative Americans, as a period in which the United States was summoned to its full powers. And that's obviously very different than how it feels on the left, which is that I think the view by and large, is that the U.S. after 9-11 unleashed some of its own political demons, that the instincts that we have towards militarism or towards abuses of power or towards discrimination, that those suddenly were given full reign. And you don't hear that, actually, on the right. You hear that this was a period in which the United States rose to the challenge. So what I think is fascinating about this, and you've hit on something important, Sarah, which is that I think Actually, even if there had not been September 11th, if there had not been those attacks, that the cultural forces that were leading to this kind of bisection of the culture were going to present themselves one way or another. And it happened to be that it was refracted through that event, but that was never necessary. I think something else would have happened that would have led us into this period in which we have such a clear parting of the paths. The, the central premises here is that the politics of the 9-11 era transformed America. I want to talk about whether or not those things that changed, those things that were transformed, were things that were lurking prior to 9-11 and were unleashed by 9-11, or did those events fundamentally change the underlying issues? Talk about that. Thank you very much for framing it in that way. It's an excellent question. And the answer that my book offers is that the 9-11 era, the war on terror, is a doorway, a gateway to the past, 
from which all of the, uh, you know, ugliest, most violent and most nativist currents of American history could march through under cover of national emergency and take power. The war on terror doesn't invent anything. If it does, it invents them, you know, in, in like, you know, specific technological development. But fundamentally, the war on terror isn't a new thing. We see continuities of the war on terror in things like Cold War anti-communism, in things like the first time America waterboards people in a foreign war, it waterboards them in the Philippines in 1898. The first time Americans waterboard other Americans, they do so against native tribespeople. It is an act of settler colonialism. These are tools that the United States reaches for. Child separation, the, the official, you know, the term used for official kidnapping to migrant families that happens during the Trump administration. This is one of the most fundamental tools of native genocide, of chattel slavery, and of, as I have found in my reporting in law enforcement around the country, on the carceral state. How America acts abroad is how America acts at home. And how America acts at home is how America acts abroad. These are fundamental continuities that a lot of the typical discussion of the war on terror obscures. And then we find ourselves wondering, oh, my God, how did we get here? And yet the way it played out, it seems, was in very in two very separate ways. One, those that tried to exploit the nativism and, and, and all those forces that you're talking about, and that's personified best by Trump. And the other was the way in which other people, and, and the neocons in particular, hoped to use the events for an entirely different purpose. That's correct. The war on terror under the Bush administration, particularly the neoconservative elements in the administration, but also kind of the Nixonian and, you know, frankly, oilman elements of the administration, you know, Cheney and Rumsfeld, most importantly, they see this as an opportunity. They see this as an opportunity to reorient American power in the imperial direction that they believe was the responsible exercise of American power, that previously, as they had seen it, there had been a period of lassitude in American empire coming from the absence of a central adversary like the Soviet Union. And the Cold War had provided earlier generations of those elements within particularly neoconservative and sort of Nixonian uh, circles, tremendous opportunity and tremendous power to portray um, and use American power abroad under cover of it being you know, in the interests of freedom all around the world. Now here came another opportunity to do that. And particularly once as a result of this, in part as a result of this, the Bush administration reaches for an expansive definition of the enemy. The Bush administration doesn't call this the war on al-Qaeda. They call it the war on terror with the suggestion that, and they say this again and again and again from in particular 2001 through 2005, that the enemy is so much broader than al-Qaeda that ultimately that provides an opportunity to do things violently in the world that have nothing to do with 9-11, like the invasion of Iraq and the occupation that follows. What should we make then of the fact that as things evolve, and we'll talk about all the things that happened in the middle, particularly with Obama, 
but that as this evolves, the, the neocon forces become in many ways the strongest anti-Trump forces. What, do we, what should we make of that in this broader context? Well, the people who run the Let the Wolves Eat Your Face party very often don't expect the wolves to eat their own faces. And that is what the never Trump and neoconservative response to Trump has been that before there was a Trump, they were performing the same kind of cover of nativism. They were just expressing it in more respectable ways. How many times did the neoconservatives respond to 9-11 by pathologizing the Arab and broader Muslim world, by pathologizing Islam itself, by describing the war on terror, describing the act of 9-11, not as the result of a plot by psychotic millenarians led by a billionaire who were finding religious justifications, uh, religious pretexts, uh, in other words, for the violence that they were inclined to commit, and then fueled by the material reality of how violently America acts in the Muslim world for adherence. Instead of taking that interpretation, they instead pathologize Islam, preserve American innocence, which is to say American exceptionalism, and use that in violent directions. Having unleashed these currents, they were entirely unprepared, particularly when they are discredited, given how disastrously their wars go, for a nativist response that says, in fact, you know, our problems are not just with Muslims, our problems are with immigrants. Our problems are with black people. Our problems are with Jews. Our problems are with liberals. Our problems are with leftists. The neoconservatives are on board for a whole lot of that until it also starts to threaten their own power and discredit them themselves. Neoconservatism is a prelude to Trumpism. It is not an alternative to it. And when it is portrayed, particularly by them themselves, as the alternative to Trumpism, it just helps guarantee that there will be more and worse Trumps to come. We've just heard clips today, starting with Uneffing the Republic, explaining that 9-11 didn't so much change our foreign policy as expose it. The Real News detailed our military spending since 9-11. Democracy Now! discussed the spread of Islamophobia, as did the Brian Lehrer Show, them with an emphasis on the casual acceptance of it. Matt Bender on Doomed made the connection between the 9-11 truther conspiracy theories and the much more destructive conspiracies of the Trump era. Vox Conversations discussed the national trauma of 9-11 and how it shook our sense of American exceptionalism. World Review from the New Statesman talked about how politics shaped our interpretations of our response to 9-11, and Who, What, Why analyzed the politics of the neocons as a prelude rather than an alternative to Trump. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from American Prestige, diving deeper into the history of Islam in America before 9-11. It's not enough to understand Islamophobia 
simply as hate crimes. It's not enough to understand it as religious intolerance or microaggressions or hate speech, but to look at the roots of where it comes from. Because what happens when you don't do that is that people accept the rhetoric coming from uh, people at the top of society. So Bush argued, for instance, this is not a war on Islam, it's about the extremists. Uh, Obama, who was an extremely sophisticated orator, talked about how Muslims are such a deep part of American society, that Muslim civilizations have contributed to world history and so on. And people accept that rhetoric and don't see how post 9-11 and even before that, there has been a systematic targeting of people who are Muslims. And Amy Goodman's other show, Breaking the Sound Barrier, told the story of Barbara Lee's no vote on the authorization for military force three days after 9-11. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful yet very beautiful memorial service as a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted. No questions asked. And now I'm going to be putting voicemails on hold for today because I have a story to tell you and it might take a few minutes. The story has to do with some journalism I accidentally ended up having to do, but it starts back in 2017. This is a clip from Brian Williams on MSNBC commenting on a missile strike in Syria that was taking place at the time. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. What did they hit? What are you convinced? So I've heard that clip several times over the last several years. It's sort of the go-to if you want to criticize Brian Williams for being either incredibly pro-military or just sort of weird and out of it and waxing poetic as opposed to taking the news seriously. But for context about what he was saying and what it actually means, this is the Washington Post reporting at the time. The Post writes, quote, The songs William quoted is, First We Take Manhattan, one of Cohen's best-known tracks. Here's the line Williams mentioned in context. From the song, I'm guided by a signal in the heavens. I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Cohen, who died in November, remember this report is from 2017, had described the track as, quote, a terrorist song, saying he admires extremism in certain forms. As he said of the song in 1988, the year of its release, now quoting Cohen, there's something about terrorism that I've always admired, 
the fact that there are no alibis or no compromises, that position is always very attractive. I don't like it when it's manifested on the physical plane. I don't really enjoy the terrorist activities, but psychic terrorism. I remember there was a great poem by Irving Layton that I once read. I'll give you a paraphrase of it. It was, well, you guys blow up an occasional airline and kill a few children here and there, but our terrorists... Jesus, Freud, Marx, Einstein, the whole world is still quaking. End quote from Cohen. Now continuing the article. Whether Williams was aware of that background or what he intended when he quoted Cohen is anyone's guess, but he became a trending topic as coverage of Syria continued late into the night. Unquote. So that's from 2017. And then last Friday, now in 2021, I just happened to be watching Brian Williams due to some circumstances not entirely in my control. And as they were discussing the drone strike in Kabul that killed only innocent people, I heard this. General, we turn to you and your life's work and the Pentagon's uh, very emotional admission today. In circumstances like this, I always try to quote the Leonard Cohen lyric warning us about being blinded by the beauty of our weapons, as he wrote it. And he meant just that. Talk about military mistakes always in the back of your mind as a combatant commander, especially in this era when we are used to the Pentagon proudly pointing out uh, surgical strikes, as they've called them. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. The Leonard Cohen lyric warning us about being blinded by the beauty of our weapons, as he wrote it. And he meant just that blinded by the beauty of our weapons. I mean, for a guy who, for some reason, likes to quote this lyric as often as he can by his own admission, I'm astonished at how wrong he got it, and not just a little bit wrong, but changing the meaning to fit the current circumstance. It's bizarre. And so, you know, of course, as he started quoting the lyric, I heard it and thought, oh, no, you're not quoting that Leonard Cohen lyric again, are you? Don't. What are you doing? And then when he started to quote it differently than I knew he had before, I thought, well, okay, now who's wrong? Was he wrong before? Is he wrong now? You know, I had to go do some digging to figure out what was actually happening. And to be honest, I don't know which is worse, waxing poetic about the beauty of killing machines or making up lyrics and meanings that never existed to try to fit a new narrative for a new time. I mean, In either case, I think it's long past due that Brian Williams quit the news and just go do spoken word poetry, where I I think he might honestly be happier. I just don't think he's a good fit for real news. I mean, you never hear Amy Goodman quoting lyrics, for instance. Professor Joseph Stiglitz, could you give your perspective on the benefits of higher taxes, not only for society as a whole, but also to the rich themselves? Because as Biggie explained all those years ago, Mo money, mo problems. Isn't that right, Professor? You're just not going to hear that. So if you agree and you think Brian Williams has seen better days and uh, should move on to something else, you can you know, retweet where I, I put that video out on the Best of Luck Twitter account. However, this isn't the end of the story. After about 24 hours went by, after I was struck dumb by Brian Williams being Brian Williams again and feeling really frustrated about 
how I had to go do some actual journalism in an attempt to take him down, I realized that this is yet another example of us grasping at a winnable, though ultimately meaningless, campaign because important campaigns seem so unwinnable these days. This is a major element of online activism and what gets called cancel culture, which I say without prejudice against any particular call to action or online condemnation of some famous person that gets grouped in with cancel culture. I'm not saying that they are to be universally praised as good or condemned as destructive. What I am saying is that they are easy and enticing. You know, I can't stop the U.S. from drone striking people. I can't convince anti-vaxxers to help us get to herd immunity. I can't convince white supremacists that Joe Biden won the presidential election. And so it's hard to get excited about launching a campaign with those kinds of goals. But I do know that Brian Williams is a shitty newscaster who says dumb stuff regularly, and it might be possible to get him off the air if enough pressure was brought to bear. So it often ends up that we launch the campaigns that are winnable, not the campaigns we actually need to win. And that ultimately is what I think is the source of so much of our political depression right now. If we only fight meaningless battles, then the wins are meaningless too. And so in a world of finite energy and the need to make choices about where we will expend our resources, it only makes sense to fight the battles that are really worth our time. But of course, that means there are going to be a lot fewer wins along the way. So let my entirely meaningless campaign to take down Brian Williams be a lesson to you. I still hope Brian Williams gets replaced by someone who can do the job better than him. But what I really hope for is to live in a political environment where discussions about real change are the norm rather than the exception so that we can make a habit of ignoring this kind of nonsense altogether. Thinking again of Amy Goodman, I mean, you would never hear her talking about this kind of story, right? And now we'll be speaking with a Leonard Cohen biographer. Sir, could you explain the gravity of misquoting the lyrics of this song and Mr. Cohen's thoughts on terrorism? Again, you're just not going to hear that. And we should all strive to live in Amy Goodman's world of politics. Otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels at nonsense sideshows. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. 
For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.